This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 1. This is Writing Excuses, Evolution of a Career. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Mary Robinette. And I'm Howard. Awesome. We are very excited to have Dong Wan with us uh, for this, the very first episode of 2020. We are doing something a little different than we've done in the past with this new season of our show. Mary Robinette, this was your idea. Can you tell us what we're doing? Well, we realize that, you know, the podcast is 15 minutes long. This is 15 years long at this point. And we're not that smart, but you all are. So we decided that rather than trying to come up with a topic what we would do was go to you and see what things you wanted to know about. So we've collected a bunch of questions and we're using them to guide the season this year. So you will not, in most cases, hear a specific question from an audience, but the topics and the questions that we're trying to answer for you have all been generated by you. Yeah. And one of the things that we saw a lot of, and this shouldn't have surprised us as much as it did, uh, maybe a third of the questions we got in were all based around career. What does a career look like as a writer, and how does it change over time, and how do you decide what you're going to do? And so since we've got Dong Wan with us, we wanted to talk about the evolution of a career and you know how do you set goals for your career. And so let's, um, let me actually start with uh, this question that I think is really interesting, and I'll throw it to Dong Wan first. When you're starting to look at your writing as a career rather than just a thing that you do, how do you choose a book that is very good for early career versus one that you might want to save for later on when you're better or more established? It's kind of a tricky question because, you know, um, the thing that I always, always, always tell people is when it comes to picking the project you want to work on, work on the one you're most excited about. That said, you know, I do talk to a lot of writers who at some point will say, I tried to do this thing and it was it was too big for me at this stage. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to do that. So, you know, sometimes when it comes to that first novel and, you know, a lot of debuts, the, the, you, oftentimes you can read a book and know that this was a first novel, that this was a debut, it was the first thing you did, because it has a, sort of a clear sort of straightforward through line. It tends to be a to B to C, and, you know, it tends to be much more straightforward in terms of how we naturally as people tell a story, right? So sometimes what you want to think about from that first book is keep it a little simpler, right? Don't try to do the 15 POVs with, you know, complicated tense things, complicated structure. Focus on telling the story that you already know how to tell and tell it well, tell it clearly and tell it straight. Yeah, I sometimes talk about this with my students as setting things on the easy setting. And e there's nothing wrong with an easy setting. Like you mm -hmm. can do beautiful, beautiful work if you are dealing with things that you are confident in. And so sometimes I, I think about that, like waiting until you have the writing chops or picking one aspect of the novel that you're going to put on the difficult setting and everything else is, mm -hmm. is well within your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also want to say that having a practice novel as your first novel um, is there's nothing like wrong with saying I'm going to write this and I'm and I, without the intention of publishing mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. you know if you finish it and you're like this is publishable potentially sure but you know we don't say I have picked up the violin I'm going to go to Carnegie <laughs> Hall with the first thing that I have learned to play yeah 
Well, and I do want to emphasize that there's absolutely nothing wrong with setting yourself a challenge that is, you know, kind of beyond your level. That's yeah. how we push ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's how we learn. Uh, but I, I do agree that when you're sitting down and saying, okay, I've got a few books under my belt. I think it's time to do one that I'm going to really try to get published. Maybe back off on that difficulty level, mm-hmm. like Mary Robinette was saying, and do something that you know you can really hit out of the park. Yeah. I, I, Sorry, at risk of uh, at risk of overthinking things, um, there is nothing in the first five years of Schlock Mercenary that uh, I couldn't go back now and do an infinitely better job at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there are no first projects that later you is is going to look at and say, "Boy, that." I really only could have written that as an early career thing. I'm not ready to write that anymore. No, you're you're always going to be leveling up. You're always going to be improving. Um, there's a story in the second year of Schlock Mercenary where I start telling the story from the point of view of the bad guys, and Schlock is the monster. And I decided to use marker art for it. It was all it was all hand lettered, and I say <laughs> this is me. This is in 2000. One, 2002, I think, that I'm telling this story. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, there's no way I could have told this story or illustrated this story when I was first starting out. And I look back at that now and I think, I was not ready to tell that story then. <laughs> I could do such a good job with it now. But now it's done. Now I've told it. Now I can't tell that story again. There is an opportunity cost associated with that for me. But that opportunity cost is associated with everything you write. You don't get a do-over. And you know what? Life is grief. Just, (laughs) just, 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 just own that. Just own the fact that your first project is always forever. Only Mm -hmm. it's going to be your first thing, and we all had to do that. Yeah, my uh, so the first novel I published, Shades of Milk and Honey, is the fourth novel that I wrote. And when the UK edition came out and they asked me if I wanted to do anything different, I'm like, well, yes, in fact. Uh, So that novel, the UK edition, is two chapters longer than the US edition because I had a better idea of how to do endings. Mm -hmm. Uh, But every novel I do is an iteration of like learning, learning where my weakness was. And, And so I think that's the thing, like when I say, you know, do the easy setting, I don't mean for the entire novel and Mm -hmm. don't, but what I mean is pick something, pick one area, just one area to improve. uh, When you're, when you're thinking like one area to stretch in um, and focus on the things that, that make you, uh, that give you joy and chase that rather than um, than doing the thing that I see a lot of writers do in their early career. They've been so much effort uh, or, or focus on, I've got to have an original idea. Mm-hmm. It's got to be original. It's got to be new and exciting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so as a result, the, the emotion that they're trying to evoke in the reader is that writer is clever, which is, that's like wanting someone to say that person is funny instead of trying to. Uh, so, instead of trying to make them laugh. Right. Yeah. The one last point I want to make on this and to contradict myself a little bit, you know, I, I do really want to encourage people, though, that when it comes to writing that first book, if you have an idea and you're excited about it and it's an ambitious project, swing for those fences. Yeah. Right. Like 
go for the big thing. Don't don't go half measures. And you know, kind of talking about Howard's point a little bit, and like resolve to not have a regret about it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just do the thing. And if it doesn't work out, you still learned so much in that process, and then it's on to the next book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And given that we've raised the specter of the opportunity cost, I do want to point out: the more you practice this, the more you you do it you're going to have better and better ideas every time. So mm-hmm. don't worry that you're burning your best idea too early because 10, 20 years from now, you're going to have such better ideas than that one and so many other cool things to do. Um, anyway. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We are going to stop now for our book of the week, which is actually a musical theater production of the week. Um, we were, Mary Robinette and I were absolutely just geeking out about what turns out to be one of our shared favorite musicals of all time. Mary Robinette, what is it? Follies by Stephen Sondheim. Yes. Uh, I love this musical so much. The The idea is it's an old vaudeville house uh, or, you know, like a Siegfried Fried Follies kind of thing. And it's shutting down and all of the old performers are coming back for a reunion. And so the whole thing is told in uh, present day and flashback. And you get to and they have cast uh, present day elderly actors um, and their younger selves. And it's a fascinating, it's like beautiful and heartbreaking. Um, Some of the singers can't hit the high notes that they used to be able to hit anymore, but the depth of their performance is so much more. And so it's, you know, when we're talking about the evolution of a career, this Mm -hmm. thing that we had just been geeking about is a beautiful portrait of that. Yeah. One of my favorite songs in the show is called the, the story of Lucy and Mm Jesse, where it is a woman singing about, uh, how now she is older and more experienced and much more interesting, but she doesn't have her youth and energy. Yeah. Whereas the youth and energy person was such a bland, boring person that nobody wanted to talk to, and how she can never be happy because she can never combine those two parts of herself. And the way that it looks at, you know, age and youth and early career and late career is is stunningly cool. Yeah. So that's Follies by Stephen Sondheim. You can find it on many different forms of media. Um, I am a big fan of the original cast, and Dan is a fan of the new cast. I, I do prefer the original cast, although the new cast does have Bernadette Peters on it, and she really hits it out of the park. So, awesome. I arranged music for an acapella group when I was uh, 25 years younger than I am now. And uh, they did a song... Uh, called Don't Make You Want to Go Home and uh, Nine Guys. And at the end of the song, one of the guys was a contratenor who just 
killed it, squeaking up there in the stratosphere. Another guy who was a one of the sons of the university's um, uh, music faculty, uh, amazing voice, and end of that song, they are scatting and noodling around, and the two of them duel very briefly with notes that most of us can only, only admire from a great distance. It was an amazing and beautiful thing. And I caught up with the, uh, uh, the, other, the other singer uh, a few years ago and found out that, uh, boy, not five years after singing that, he developed vocal nodes and could no longer, could mm-hmm. no longer perform at all, um, but now works as music faculty. Um, I have the recording that I was present for where he was, I I almost have guilt because I wonder if the things that he was doing to his voice to hit those notes that the other guy was just born to hit might have been part of the problem. Uh, but, but that thing that he was able to do in that portion of his career will always be with me, will always be with him. It always exists but he had to take a different path. When we talk about the evolution of careers, uh, we have to recognize that the path that we think we are on, the path that we have laid out for ourselves, is not the path that we will be on Mm -hmm. 20 years from now. It is going to change. Um, And... And we can't hit it regret-free. There, there will always be, you know, I said life is grief. <laughs> you get to grieve the, the path untaken. Uh, you get to grieve the expenditure of what you thought was your best idea when you couldn't write it as well as you could now. Um, but you also get to rejoice in where your feet are right now. Uh, you just got to be agile and keep mm-hmm. them moving. And, you know, the thing I want to say about that, though, is also there's no wasted time, right? right. Yeah. You you always learn from that experience, yeah. and you can take so many lessons from a moment that, you know, I'm a big believer that the only way, literally the only way we learn new things is through failure, right? Yeah. You hit that wall, and you learn lessons from how you hit that wall, you pick yourself back up, and then you keep moving forward, right? So even if it doesn't work out, take the lessons from it, Right. Examine it to see what other things you could have done, how you could pivot it from there, and and do that next time. Yeah, and uh, we I don't want to spend too much time on this specific topic because we're going to dedicate an entire episode to it later in the year uh, called Rebooting Your Career. But for now, we've talked about the early stage of your career. Let's talk a little then about career planning. And so another question <laughs> I'm going to pitch right at Dongwon. Uh, once you've got that first book, maybe you've made your first sale or, or you've done some self-publishing and found some success, how do you plan for the next stage? Um, this really is one of my very favorite topics, and it's one of the things I love most about my job is working with writers to help them strategize about how do we want the career to look? What, what, what are we planning for this first book, for the book after that, for the contract after that, for the contract after that, right? And so roughly, generally with most of my clients, not necessarily everybody, with most of them, we have a sense of here's what we're doing now, here's what we're doing in five years, here's what we're doing in 10 years, right? Now, the thing is, publishing (laughs) is a system that is designed to be extremely random, right? What makes a book work is highly unpredictable. What makes a book tank 
also highly unpredictable, right? So when you're thinking about this, there's two things you need to keep in mind is always have a plan, always know where you're trying to get to, but also be ready to throw that plan out the window at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. And often what we're doing is when we're planning for those decision points, right? You're looking at, we have contract one, contract two, contract three. Then what you're doing is at each of those junctures of when we're deciding what are we going to write next, the thing we're solving for is having options, right? Yeah. It, we're not solving for, we will do A to B to C. What we're doing is solving for, okay, once we do this, what are the three moves we can make at that point? How do we make sure that the first move we make doesn't close doors for the next move we want to make, right? If we get that movie deal, then we can do this. If the book sells five copies, then we can also do that, right? So you're keeping all those things in your mind and trying to build out a little bit of a decision tree. But you will go completely mad if you try to map the whole thing. So you pick your path, but then you're ready to know uh, we can pivot whenever we need to, right? Yeah. And and this is a really important point that you, you know, having those options open. One of the things that I see uh, writers do at the beginning of their career is that they— uh, pin their identity and their, 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 they brand themselves around their first project. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, let me just say, a mistake. Um, because the first project is unlikely to be the first one that takes off. Uh, if George R. R. Martin had done that, uh, we would all be looking, his, his entire brand would be vampires on a steamboat because <laughs> that was, you know, fever dream. It's mm-hmm. like, it's a very good book. It's a very good yeah. book. It's not what he became known yeah. for. Uh, you know, I did a lot of Regency stuff, but one of the things that I did very consciously when I was, and this is speaking of closing doors, we sat down and talked about book two, and it was a sequel, but the classic sequel in a romance is that the sister of, or the best friend of the main character now becomes the POV character in the next book and does, and and, and it's another romance structure. And we made the conscious decision not to do that because had I done that, I would have, that would have put me on the romance path very, very firmly. And I like romance, but I didn't want that to be the only thing mm-hmm. I did. So we made the conscious decision to not do that. Um, and that that's the kind of thing that you're looking mm-hmm. for. My general rule of thumb strategy is you have book one, you do book two in a way that's similar to book one, either same category, similar voice, similar topic, to prove you can do it, you can do it again, and then book three, prove you can do something else, Mm -hmm. right? That's generally how I think about it. It's not always that pattern, but it's why, you know, if we're going to do series, I like duologies, I like linked standalones, I don't like a seven-book series, right? Because if you have a seven-book series, then you're trapped in that for seven years of your career at a minimum, right? So if you're doing trad. Um, so, you know, what you want to keep maneuverability. You want to mm-hmm. keep the ability to jump to something else if things go wrong, or even if they go right, sometimes the right move is to then jump to something else. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to jump in on this because I, I very specifically went maybe f- much farther over the line than I should have with my second project. Um, my first thing was first person, modern day contemporary horror, and then the second project was third-person post-apocalyptic science fiction, uh, you know, multiple viewpoint instead of one, female protagonist instead of male. Like, I made it as different as I conceivably could because I wanted to not be pigeonholed. I wanted to present myself as the person who can do anything, which has had both pros and cons. Uh, it is very difficult for a giant audience to follow me book to book because not everybody's as interested in the same things that I am. On the other hand, I've got a historical fiction that came out last year, 
And everyone was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Of course he's going to jump out of, you know, the other four genres he does into a brand new one uh, because that's the brand he's established for himself. Yeah, I looked, so when I was, uh, when we were first talking, it was like, do I want to do a a Tad Williams career where every single book is different? Um, Or do I want to do a, a, you know, a series, a genre thing where you you are doing a series? Um, And uh, and I write all over the map in my short fiction. So the thing that I have been doing um, is that I've been uh, doing the same but different path. So like book one, straight up Austin pastiche. Book two is a courtroom thriller, is a wartime novel, spy novel disguised as a Regency romance. And like the, the same is the, the set dressing and the characters. That is my same. My plot structure shifts. When I got to Ghost Talkers, I kept a plot structure that was similar to one that I had already done. And I stayed in historical, but I jumped forward by a hundred years. And I also knew by that point that what people liked in my books was that I had happily committed couples. And so I stuck with that. With the Lady Astronaut books, it's science fiction, but it's still historical. And that, again, it's like, I, that is a very conscious choice. Um, the uh, the book that I have coming out this year um, is another Lady Astronaut book, but the, the one that I am working on for next year is, um, it's straight up science fiction, but I am deliberately giving it a, a 1920s noir feel in terms of the aesthetic to retain that sense of familiarity to make it easier. So I think of it as leaving breadcrumbs for, mm-hmm. for my readers to follow me, um, which has... I been- mean, really what this is, is having a brand. Yeah. 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 You know, one of the things we talk about a lot and that new writers hear all the time is don't chase market trends. Don't try to write what you think people want. This advice sounds like it's the opposite of that because you're saying, I know what my readers like. But it's because they're your readers. You're not trying to chase an entire market. You have found your people and you are giving them what they want, which is a very different thing. Yeah, and I am I am looking at expanding out of that because I'm like I don't want to stay just with the the historical regency which obviously I love my regencies. Mm-hmm. But I like how do I bring science fiction in? How do I bring mainstream people in? Like I'm trying to add each time without losing my core. You know, I talk a lot about how all of publishing is reducible to one question. And that mm-hmm. question is who is this book for? Yeah. Right? So what you're doing isn't writing to the market. It is being very intentional about who this book is for. And you know, this is my current audience. I want to grow my audience. And I want to push my audience to also follow me to these other places. And so, you know, sometimes when you make the big jumps, as Dan was talking about earlier, it can be hard to hang on to that audience, even though you know who the audience of the new yeah. stuff is, right? So in terms of transitioning and growing, I think they're two very different strategies that can work really, really well. Um, and, and it did lose people when I didn't do the traditional romance structure for the second mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. I mean, you always will, right? Yeah. Because y- you take risks when you write yeah. a new book. Otherwise, why are you writing a new book? Um, so, you know, there are chances you will lose people, but you'll also gain people, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So, uh, When this episode airs, I'm uh, six months away from ending the 20-year Schlock Mercenary mega arc. Um, and in terms of career decision... That is a conscious decision uh, built around, <laughs> big surprise, making money. Uh, the, the two words, schlock, good career goal. schlock and mercenary, neither of those <laughs> words should suggest that I'm all about the art. Um, uh, when you reach 
the when you get to the bookshelves and you are holding something and you see that it is the first book of three or the third book of ten and book four isn't out yet, uh, there is a group of people who won't spend money yet. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm right now, you know, in print is book fifteen out of twenty, and I need to be able to say the end and have everything in print because there is a group of people whose money I don't have yet. <laughs> um, and, and and that is. There's 10 of them. You're going to get them. <laughs> and I'm coming after all of them at once. I've never bought one of your books. That's <laughs> just fine. Um, I mean, you keep giving them to me. So Yeah. The, uh, but this, so this decision, I, I need to be able to say the end. Uh, there are people who are asking me, so what comes next? And no matter what the answer is, there's a group of people who won't be satisfied yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, the most important person for me to satisfy right now, and Sandra and I have have had this conversation uh, several times, is me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do I want to do next? And part of what I want to do, and this is the sort of thing that's dangerous to put on, uh, put on the internet in a recorded permanent sort of format. One of the things that I would love to do is no longer be putting out a daily comic strip because there are things that I can't do while I have that deadline pushing yep. down on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that has set me apart from almost every other comic strip out there is that it has been daily and has updated without fail. So am I sacrificing my brand in order to do the thing that I want? Or am I, am I making the right c- career decision? Uh, as of this recording, I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, but this brings up a really important point that the thing about strategy is that brands evolve, yeah. right? And they have to evolve. If they remain static over time, you don't have a strategy, you have a pattern, right? Yeah, my brand when I began was uh, the puppeteer who is also Regency. Uh, right now, um, it is the uh, the writer who can talk about pee in space. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, there's a huge market for that. Yeah, yeah. Who knew? Um, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we have let this episode run a little long because it is the very first one and we wanted to introduce the whole year. I, I do want to end on the point that, that Howard hit on, uh, which is, you know, first of all, as you're planning your career, A, make sure you have a plan, but B, make sure it's something that you love because otherwise, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, goodness knows there's not enough money in it to make it worthwhile. Uh, but <laughs> if, if it's something that you genuinely love to do, that is what is going to see you through everything else that happens to you. So uh, we want to leave you with some homework. Let's get that from Don Juan. Uh, I think the homework is, you know, a lot of times when I talk to a writer I'm, I'm considering working with, I'll ask them this question of um, whose career do you wish you could have? You know, if you look out in the market today, and when I ask that question, I'm not asking uh, who do you want your books to read like, you know, what kind of, you know, it's not about the style of the book. It's not about the voice of the book or even the subject matter. It's look at their career, look at how fast they publish, what kinds of book they publish, kind of who they're publishing for. Are they doing YA and adult? Are they doing like all different genres, categories, things like that. So take a look around at the market and really pick one or two authors and really examine how have they published, what years, what was the pace of that? When did they start taking off and those kind of mm-hmm. things and consider is that the life that I want? 
or do I want something else? And then that will start helping you to inform a decision about the career choices you're looking at over the next year, five years, 10 years. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, look at the other ways they spend their time. Are exactly. they the kind of person that does a lot of news stuff, a lot of convention appearances? Mm -hmm. Do they make most of their money speaking rather than on their sales? You know, mm -hmm. kind of look at all of that peripheral Are stuff. Are they doing as well. all school visits? You know, yeah, exactly. What's their lifestyle like too? And do you want to live that life, right? Mm -hmm. Do they have a day job? Um, or are all they are chained to a desk putting out books every six months? Awesome. Well, great. This has been a cool episode, and we are excited for the rest of the year. Uh, please join us next week when we're going to have Brandon Sanderson and our 2020 special guest, Victoria Schwab. We're going to talk about theme and subtext, and it's going to be awesome. So, for now, you are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm and engineered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dan Wells, Dongwon Song, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. Please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.